we are in week five of our series called What's Your Number? And uh, it's based on a tool called the Enneagram. And we're learning how to love ourselves deeper, love each other deeper, and God deeper through this tool. Enneagram also creates those healthier relationships and it provides those tools to maybe possibly work through conflicts and then also just dynamically to help you become healthy in your relationship with Christ and wholeness. And so today we're going to look at type 5 called the observer. Think of the word observation for a moment. Webster defines observation as the action or process of observing something or someone carefully in order to gain information. Observers, type 5 on the Enneagram, they want to know. They want to understand. They want to make sense of the world around them. They are insightful, observant, desiring the world to be less chaotic and have more order. Fives reflect God's wisdom and order in the world. Fives want to find out why things are the way they are. And whether it's the cosmos or the microscopic world or the animal world or vegetable world or mineral world and all those kingdoms, and they also want to understand the inner workings within the imaginations and the parameters of making things better and new and intricate. They spend a great time desiring to uncover those truths and the details behind everything. They're searching, they're asking for questions, and they are also delving into things in depth. They, they are always, uh, or I'm sorry, they do not accept received opinions and doctrines. They feel a strong need to test those truths and assumptions for themselves. Therefore, their core need is to be confident and self-sufficient. Absolutely do not want to be seen as incompetent or useless. And that's one of their significant fears. And so five strive for independence. They appreciate privacy. They tend to conserve their mental, emotional, and physical resources, those, that energy. And at their best, fives will be very visionary and mindful. At their worst, they may experience uh, being stingy or intellectually arrogant or disconnected from their heart and emotions. Their core sin is avarice, greed, or stinginess. Some famous fives, of course, Albert Einstein, Laurie Anderson, George Lucas, St. Thomas Acquaintance, or Aquinas, <laughs> Acquaintance, Bill Gates, Charles Darwin, Ebenezer Scrooge, his character, Sir Isaac Newton, Spock on Star Trek, Agatha Christie, and the classical music style of Baroque. You know, if you watch the movie Sully, you'll see when the U United, uh, U.S. Airway Flight 1549 was struck by a flock of Canadian geese, and almost immediately after takeoff, that plane lost total engine loss. And so, without the ability to return to a nearby airport, Captain Chesley Sullenberg, or his nickname Sully, who was portrayed by Tom Hanks, um, made a calm and precise choice as he's communicating with air traffic control. 
he begins to just state the facts about what is happening with really without any emotion. And it's kind of fascinating. He simply states to those in, uh, on board, brace for impact. Now, if that would have been me, I would have been yelling, we're all gonna die. Place your life in Jesus' hands. Tell my wife I love her. We're going down. I would not say brace yourself for impact. You see, here, to, we usually show videos of people on our staff who have the numbers, but we don't have a number five on staff here at Anderson Hills. They're mostly engineers and scientists. Um, but I want to introduce you to a five that is in my life. He's one of my best friends. His name is Tom Wessel. He was playing right there on that guitar. I'm trying to find Tom here. Where are you at, Tom? There he is over there. And we've been friends over 10 years. And every time we get together a lot, probably even once a week, and he's in my uh, life group, and then he's also in a men's share group. Tom's a part of our Fresh Expressions, and he helps with music and ministries at our breweries, and he plays here at the contemporary services a lot. He's a master guitarist. He not only, does, now he not, he not only plays guitar, but he also plays the banjo, and then he also plays jazz flute. And he's the epitome of a number five observer. When you first meet Tom, he is so chill. He's very analytical, and he's calm as a cucumber. Tom's job is in information technology. I asked him to give me a summary of what he does in his job, and Tom said, I am a solutions architect. I apply technology to ideations and turn them into realities. That's a number five. So I sat down and I talked to Tom. We, we sat down this week, uh, and I, I asked him about his growth and his relationship with Jesus Christ. And Tom told me uh, from his five personality and Catholic upbringing that he never really had any problem justifying a creator. However, he said, for a long time, I had the difficulty to justify a loving creator. And he began the search, investigating constantly the reality that there was and is a God of love who cared about him. And he had a head-to-heart experience during a service called Dying Moments on the walk to Emmaus. And he found that God actually took that sin or what he wanted to die to, and Tom felt forgiven deep in his heart, and that God cared for him and loved him. And at that altar, Tom found there was no condemnation, but forgiveness and deep love. So today we are going to see facts and details about a person in the Bible named Nicodemus. Most people hear uh, John 3.16, and they attach that just to one verse. But they, if you see it in the context, you find that this famous passage was stated in a conversation a private conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. So Nicodemus was definitely a number five observer. And so he was secretly looking and analyzing, investigating Jesus Christ, seeking to know more about him. Let's take a look at this conversation from the Gospel of St. Paul, chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, 
we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where the sound comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen, but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. Then how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. One of the things you notice in this conversation is the way Jesus speaks to Nicodemus factually. Jesus really wants Nicodemus to understand and turn that understanding into faith and belief. Now, there's this hit show called CSI, Crime Scene Investigation. It's been around for a long time. Although I'm not a fan, it kind of scares me. I'm fascinated by documentaries about crime scene investigation. And you find through the training and strategy and procedures and brilliant minds to help solve crimes, that's really amazing to me. Today, we find Nicodemus, a number five, doing kind of a CSI, a crime or Christ scene investigation. I know that sounds kind of corny, but that's really what he was up to. Imagine if there was such an episode. Here are the facts, and I want to give them to you. You would find a man, Nicodemus, who has observed Jesus as a Pharisee and a member. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court for the Jews. The Sanhedrin only had 70 70 members out of the 6,000 Pharisees. And so these top 70 made the Sanhedrin, made up the Sanhedrin journey. And Nicodemus was one of them. And the Sanhedrin was really the authority over every Jew in the world. And one of the primary duties of them was to examine and deal with anyone suspected to be a false prophet. Therefore, it really is a very detailed investigation that Nicodemus is doing. Secondly, Nicodemus came to visit Jesus at night. You would not believe how much ink and computer time has been devoted to that, to that question. Why did he come at night? Was he afraid of being guilt through association? Was he fearful of what his Pharisee colleagues would say about him? 
Or was he coming as a watchdog to the Sanhedrin? Or was he genuinely interested in getting to know Jesus better? And all of these are very fascinating questions. But his friends would probably scoff at Nicodemus for Nicodemus finding out about Jesus and wanting to know, find, finding more about him. They had labeled Jesus Christ as a troublemaker who was upsetting uh, the rules of the people and looking for an opportunity to silence Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus as a true and real threat to their religious beliefs. But as in number five, Nicodemus came to him and he said these things, and we just read them. You must be a teacher, Rabbi, who came, and no one else could do the signs and wonders from a part of the presence of God being upon them. So Nicodemus is stating that fact from his observation of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus responded to Nicodemus by saying to him, you know, you can't see the kingdom of God without being born again. You must be born from above, not anything physical or material. It is a spiritual reality that must come into you, Nicodemus. And so he says you must be born again. And Nicodemus is just getting into the fact that you can't enter your mother's womb again. How can you do that? But Jesus is moving Nicodemus from fact to faith and from pharisaical practice of complying with religious laws and detail to, to, to all the practices of that. And he's moving him to spiritual reality and revival that can happen through the transformation of being born through water and the spirit. New birth. It's an inner working. Jesus began to share with Nicodemus the truth that without being born of water and spirit, a person cannot experience the kingdom of God or become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And becoming a Christian and being a citizen of the kingdom of God is so much more than following rules and laws in order to please God. It's a radical reordering of priorities in life and an alignment into the rhythms of the spirit and receiving new life and transformation by faith and belief. And in this faith, God naturally moves all of us into this turnaround, into a radical spiritual rebirth. And Nicodemus, he just didn't get it. He was trying to understand it, and he didn't understand. And this is one of the reasons why I love Jesus Christ. He wants everyone to get this. Not just fives, all of us. He uses so many metaphors in this passage, and it's so amazing. And you read the details of it, and I can't unpack it all in a 25-minute sermon, but he wants us to believe in this spiritual process. And we see it factually here in the conversation with Nicodemus. So after this teaching, Jesus goes on to explain what many would call the greatest passage of scripture in the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Fact. Jesus goes on in verse 17. For God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but the world might be saved through him. Fact. Eternal life in him. No condemnation. Salvation. Complete wholeness. In him. These are the fine details of this investigation. It's God giving all of himself to the world. And this was done in love. 
God loving us corporately and individually. And Jesus loved constantly through his ministry. And Nicodemus saw it, and he was trying to understand, and he needed to know all the details behind that. And Jesus was giving he, these free information details to him. We're not really told that Nicodemus, his reaction to this conversation with Jesus transformed his life. However, we see some really cool facts about Jesus a few chapters later in John 7. Jesus is once again encountering conflict with the religious leaders. He's been, he's been teaching in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, and some people are amazed at his teaching. And other, think, other people think, especially the religious leaders, they thought that he was demon-possessed. And these Pharisees hear about all of this, and they send guards to arrest Jesus. Let's look at it. John 7, 37 through 39. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. I want to stop there. After hearing the spiritual faith-based teaching, the crowd is still divided and a little confused about who Jesus is and if he's the Messiah. The religious leaders, they, they want to arrest Jesus for making these statements about himself. So let's continue. It says in John 7, 45 through 52. Finally, the temple guards were back to the chief, uh, went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also? And the Pharisees, they retorted, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. In this passage, we can clearly see that Jesus is teaching and influencing Nicodemus in very deep ways. And he's growing in his head knowledge. And he's acknowledging from that head knowledge that he's, what he's heard and learned from Jesus Christ. And so he opens the door to hearing more about Jesus, and he appeals to the religious leaders and the Jewish law, which did not allow for a man to be condemned without having two witnesses to testify against him. Nicodemus is just trying to uncover truth, and he's find, trying to find out more from Jesus. And this truth is so very different from what the Jewish leaders thought and thought about what the Messiah was going to be and do. No one thought the Messiah was going to be the suffering servant. No one believed the Messiah would come from Galilee, although we know Jesus was from Bethlehem, as the scriptures foretold. As a five, Nicodemus would have been very interested in discovering that truth that turned out to be unexpected, something no one would thought would happen, and he's beginning to get it. So the last time we see Nicodemus in John's gospel is after Jesus died on the cross. We find the passage in John 19, 38 through 40. Check this out. Later, 
Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but he secret, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was accordance in accordance with Jewish burial customs. I believe Jesus, or Nicodemus was transformed by Jesus Christ. I believe that Nicodemus grew in his understanding of who Jesus is, and he made a radical commitment to Jesus Christ. He's not hiding his commitment to Jesus Christ from any of the religious leaders. He is willingly to be seen publicly in the company of a disciple of Jesus. He's willingly uh, collecting the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. He's willing to sacrifice and spend a, a large amount of money to provide and administer those spices upon the dead body of Jesus for his burial. Theologians believe the cost for these spices, the 75 pounds, was anywhere between uh, 100000 to $500,000 if it was valued today. You see, with this Christ scene investigation, we find it's solved, and it's no longer a mystery because we can see it in the scriptures. Jesus died and was buried, and he rose again, case closed. Perhaps this observer went from knowledge to faith in Jesus Christ, here to here. And this is what Jesus truly wanted for Nicodemus. That faith that Jesus truly wasn't just a good teacher, a good rabbi, but the fact that he was the very son of God and the savior of the world. God wants us to be born again. God wants us to make that claim. And it's God's will for, for you and I to be born again. There can be very inquisitive people out there who know the Bible inside and out. They can be conjugating original Greek and Hebrew words. They are captivated maybe by the archaeology of the Bible. They know the Bible, but they do not know the God of the Bible and how the God of the Bible desires to come into the heart and have that heart strangely warm and burn in love for God. I believe this is why St. Paul wrote this in a passage of scripture to Timothy about the welfare of the church. Check this out. They're always learning, but they're never able to come to the knowledge of truth. We can always learn and get knowledge and data and facts, but never get that knowledge of truth in our bones, in our heart, in our spirits, in our souls. And the inner working, the Holy Spirit desires to do that within us, in our heart, mind, and soul. And it happens through God's love and grace to us. Transformation can be found in Jesus Christ and living by the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't observe your way to heaven. You can't. It comes from believing in your heart. Romans 10.9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
like I said, it's got to move from here to here, and it's been said that that's the greatest chasm in the world. I want to ask you today, if you were tried as a Christian, is there enough evidence to lock you up? Is there enough evidence to show your love for God? So how does a five grow in grace in this head-to-heart ministry? Fives and everybody else, it's okay for you to express feelings and emotions, not stuffing them down and burying them. Tell people how you feel about them, the positivity of, of how you feel about them. Say things like, I love you, man. (laughs) You're amazing to me, and you make me feel this way. Do that. Write it down. Get it into your head, but also have those feelings touch your heart. Engage in the reality of joy, abundant life, and happiness that God wants to impart upon you. That's a fact, and I believe it. Second, fives need to get into community. Folks, we are connectional people. We have to share our resources with each other. And that for a five is meaning sharing your wisdom, your gifts, your money, learning the spiritual practice of gift sharing so that others are blessed by that gift sharing. Sometimes fives are prone to isolate themselves. We are created to be in that relationship to God and each other. Get real with yourself, with others. Get real with God. Like I said, do this through journaling, through this, through life groups, through prayer. Finally, get this message into your heart through an easy acronym of ABC. A is admitting that we are sinners. We are flawed, and we can get unhealthy and outside the will of God. And we have to repent and come back to him so that we can experience the wholeness, the salvation, the wellness of God individually. Next, we have to be, be, believe in the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ here and here. And C, we have to choose to put our faith in the one who came as God. Put all our hope in him. Trust in him. And these truths will set you free. These truths will set you free.